Psalm 38 is a psalm of confession. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down upon me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. My bones have no soundness because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before you, O Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds. My strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. Those who seek my life set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they plot deception. I'm like a deaf man who cannot hear, like a mute who cannot open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. I wait for you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord my God. For I said, do not let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my foot slips. For I am about to fall. My pain is ever with me. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Many are those who are my vigorous enemies, those who hate me without reason are numerous. Those who repay my good with evil slander me when I pursue what is good. O Lord, do not forsake me. Be not far from me, O my God. Come quickly to help me, O Lord, my Savior. Let's bow in prayer this morning. And so, Lord, this morning, as we gather as your people, we want to give you thanks for the good things that you provide for us. Thank you, Lord, that you um, have given us <laughs> bright sunshine and blue skies. Thank you, Lord, for the love of family, that you are alive, that we are healthy for our friends. Lord, we are grateful that you are true to all your promises, that none will ever fail. We are grateful, Lord, for your unending love. That through you we can face tomorrow. Lord, we thank you for what we've just read. That our God is gracious and forgives us all sin and unrighteousness. And so, Lord, with great thankfulness this morning, we come and worship the God of splendor. And say, how great 
you are. Lord, we thank you for uh, just some of the other things of life. For We thank you for Mark this morning and pray for him as he celebrates a birthday today. We thank you for the, uh, the many ways in which you've answered prayer for Dan and Kerry over these last three months. And pray for their safe journeys home this morning. But Lord, our hearts are also uh, troubled. We feel pain for our family. And we pray for Rod and Anne this morning. We pray for Megan and Patty as they just come face to face with, with the hardships of life. We pray that you'd bring them much comfort this week. And Lord, we come this morning, like David, in Psalm 39, to say our sin is before us. And we confess to you, O Lord, this morning, our pride, our foolishness, our self-righteousness, our ignorance, our, our folly. And we rest this morning in your unfailing love, knowing that nothing that we do can drive us from your great love. And so refresh and restore us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I uh, read that psalm this morning because it, it ties in with where we're going to be going in this morning's sermon. Good grief, Charlie Brown. I don't know if any of you have read Peanuts, if you uh, enjoy Snoopy cartoons, I, I, I enjoy any comic in any cartoon. Um, if it's got pictures, then I can read it. Um, and Charlie Brown's great. And I'm sure some of you, if you've watched any of Charlie Brown, uh, the animation on TV or whatever, you can actually hear the voice of Lucy saying, good grief, Charlie Brown. Um, it's a it's a it's a measure of, said with a measure of exasperation and eye rolling and it's just poor old Charlie Brown can do nothing right. To be honest, though, all the characters in Peanuts use the phrase "good grief," and even Charlie Brown himself says "good grief" and often "good grief" about himself. But it's that idea of a forehead slap. How could I have been so stupid? How could I say that? Good grief. Of course, to be honest, good grief is a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? Uh, grief isn't often thought of as being good. Um, grief tends to mean sorrow and sadness, and often because someone has died. And so good grief, well, well I suppose it depends who's died as to whether the grief is good or not. In all honesty, uh, we do need to grieve, and grieving is a good thing to do. And if you don't grieve, you perhaps need to go and see a psychiatrist um, and deal with your emo some emotional issues. But we're going to be talking about good grief today, but a grief that is good and a grief that isn't good. And it's going to have nothing to do with Charlie Brown and very little to do with funerals. But we're going to read from 2 Corinthians this morning. We're still in 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 7 this morning. And uh, we're going to read about two kinds of grief today. So uh, from chapter 7, from verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. 
Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not an account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted you are to us. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad that I have complete confidence in you. Have you ever written a letter, written a message, and you just want to take it back? Or you've said something, you want to grab the word and say, ah, bring those back, I wish I hadn't said that. Or there's, there's that email that you sent, right? You got a phone call, or maybe you received an email, and it just riled you up. And so the best thing for you to do is just bang out an angry response and send it as quickly as possible. How dare they say that? And, and you send it, and five minutes later, you kind of reread what you've just written and go, oh, what have I just done? Oh no, how can I get that back? Is there a way to retrieve it? Or perhaps you've sent an email like that and then accidentally hit reply to all <laughs> when you really didn't need your boss to see what you've just sent. Many of us are celebrating WhatsApp's uh, recent innovation to do the delete for all message. I don't know if you remember, it was about three or four years ago now, um, there was a mom somewhere up in the northwest province, I think, who sent a rather sexy photo um, that was intended to go to her husband. And instead of going to her husband, she posted that picture, she sent that picture to the hockey parents group from the local school. And she had to very embarrassedly say, please, I'm terribly sorry, this was not meant to go to this group. And I think it was perhaps out of things like that, that WhatsApp realized that they need to put something in there that allowed us to delete for all, so that we can retrieve our mistakes. If only we hadn't said what we'd said. I must say, when I see those messages, though, when I look at WhatsApp and I see that uh, you've just gone delete this message, I'm curious. I want to know why you needed to delete it. And I know perhaps it was just a spelling mistake, but sometimes I think, what, what did they want to say to me that now they've changed their mind about? I'm, I'm curious about what you were thinking at the time. Paul had written a letter to the Corinthians. It had been delivered to them by Titus, but it was not an easy letter to write. In fact, once the letter had gone, Paul wondered for a moment if perhaps he should run after Titus and try and get the letter back. 
um, because it was a harsh letter. He'd said things that needed to be said about their immorality, about their spiritual immaturity, about their relational insecurities, about their foolish choice of leaders in the church, uh, about their doctrinal chaos. But it's been sent and there's no getting it back. And so Paul says, for a moment, I regret sending that letter because I knew that when you get it, it's going to sting. And he says, when you got it, it did sting. It did hurt. And I, I kind of regret doing that. But then he says, but when I reflect and see your response, I'm not regretful at all. Because what needed to be said or what was said was what needed to be said. And so for you, after you've sent that fateful email and you can't get it back and you're waiting for your boss to reply, you're waiting for an hour or two because email is pretty quick and WhatsApp is even quicker. You'll get an instant response on that. For Paul, he's got to wait for months because Titus has had to go all the way around to the north through Macedonia down to Corinth and then Titus is going to come all the way back around again. And actually, Paul can't wait. He can't wait to hear what's result, and that's we talked about that last week. How Paul then traveled all the way around and met up with Titus in Macedonia. And so while you're waiting for your email to come back, hoping that your boss will, will laugh it off and understand, or the potential that your boss might just fire you, Paul is waiting for a few months to see what response he will get from the Corinthians. And when he meets up with Titus, Titus comes with good news. Titus says, this is great. The Corinthians responded with sorrow and sadness, which doesn't sound like good news, does it? Titus says they responded with good grief. They took note of what the letter had said. Instead of, and then instead of getting angry and self-righteous and getting into the whole, how dare he say that about us, they saw the truth of what Paul had said in the letter. They realized that they were, in a sense, looking into a mirror and they responded with sorrow and their sorrow led them to repentance. And that's the big word that we're going to try and hunt down this morning. We're going to talk about repentance. And Paul says here, I'm so glad that your sorrow led you to repentance. It's what should happen. It's what God intended to happen. And so Paul says in this passage, he says, there are two kinds of sorrow. There's a, a godly sorrow, which, to, which leads to salvation and life. And there's a worldly sorrow, which leads to death. And the point is this, right, that there, are, that, that there are all sorts of people in the world, people inside the church and outside the church who come face to face with their shortcomings, with their failures, with their mistakes, with their sin. And you'll respond to that with one kind of sorrow or another. Even, even hardened atheists will at some point in their life feel some measure of remorse and some pricking of conscience at one kind of sin or another. And the question is, where will that sorrow, where will that pricking of conscience lead to? Will it lead to genuine, true, heartfelt repentance and change? Or will it just lead to a little bit of guilt, a little bit of feeling sorry, perhaps making a few excuses and moving on with life with a bit of a, well, I'll try not to do that again. And so my question this morning that I want us to try and deal with is just to try and get to this issue of how do we deal with guilt? How do we deal with the regret for things that have been said or things that have been done? How do we deal with coming face to face 
with something that we may not like about ourselves? How do we deal with um, our sudden road rage that we didn't think was there? How do we deal with our unexpected, unsuspected loss of self-control? How do we deal with our own greed when we realize that that's what we are? Or with our, 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 our deceitfulness and our unwillingness to live by truth? Now today I'm going to make reference to two people quite a lot. They've helped me to figure and think through a lot of this. So we're going to reference a fair amount of C.S. Lewis this morning. C.S. Lewis was that he was an Oxford scholar converted to Christianity in the early 1920s from atheism, and he calls himself the most miserable and reluctant convert in all of England. He didn't want to become a Christian. He didn't want God to be real. He didn't want it to be true. And yet, with, uh, in conversation with his friend John Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis responds in, in, in surrender to Christ. And in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, he becomes the intellectual voice of the evangelical church. He's quick to point out that I'm not a theologian, I'm a scholar, I'm not a pastor. And yet, so much of, so much of what he wrote and what he said formed evangelical intellectual thought. The second guy I'm going to reference this morning a fair amount is Tim Keller. And Tim Keller is a Presbyterian pastor in New York City. He's a deep thinker. He loves to engage with culture and with the world around him. And he was just diagnosed two weeks ago with pancreatic cancer. So please pray for Tim. But both of these men have a fair amount to say about repentance and about what gospel repentance is and the difference between what Paul calls godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And so I'm going to be quoting and referencing both of them quite a bit this morning. So let's start with worldly sorrow, which Paul says leads to death. So here's what he's saying, right? The Corinthians could have received this letter, which pointed out their sinfulness their, their, their approval of immorality, their, their, their betrayal, the knife in the back to Paul, their insincerity, their outright lies, all the other things that were pointed out in this letter. And they could have been faced with this and could have said, oh boy, Paul's right. We've been bad. We've been terrible. We'd better change. We're really sorry. We've been caught. We've been found out. We'll try do better. But would that have led to true repentance? To be honest, it's how a lot of us uh, deal with uh, when we're confronted with our own feelings of guilt and remorse. Here's how Tim Keller uh, expresses this. He says there really are two ways that you can respond in a worldly fashion um, to to your feelings of guilt, to, to the pointing out of your sin. Two ways that will perhaps make you feel a little bit better about yourself and will even result perhaps in some some measure of superficial change, but ultimately leaves you as guilty as you are. So let's use this example, right? If if you're wanting to instill honesty in yourself or, or in other people, you could say this. If you lie, you'll get into trouble with God and you'll get into trouble with other people. And depending on how big your lie is, that will depend on how big the trouble you get into. But what's the motivation for that? What's the motivation behind that kind of thinking? Well, the motivation is punishment, fear of punishment. You'll get into trouble. Don't do it. Or you could say, if you lie, you'll be just like all those other people who lie all the time. And you're better than that. What's the motivation behind that kind of thinking? The motivation behind that is pride. You don't want to be like them. 
You don't want to be a nasty, dirty liar. You can be better than them. And both fear and pride as a motivation for repentance and change are essentially self-centered approaches to change. And so it boils down to be honest because it will pay off for you. Be honest because it benefits you. And all that does is it stirs up within you, your ego, your ego to increased selfishness in order to force you, in order to force you to become or to curb your bad intentions and inclinations. It's basically a try harder to, to, to be better because you can, because you've got the power to do it. And so this kind of moralistic behavior modification, it works on one level. I mean, it's the basis of our policing system, right? If you're bad, then you'll get caught and the police will fine you and send you to jail. It works within our social structures. You're better than those people. You can look down on them. It's often how we, how we parent our children. Don't do that because you'll be caught and you'll be punished for it and that's bad. You're better than the kids next door or the kids across the street, so behave better than them. And all we're, all we're appealing to is a selfish motivation to an external behavior modification. And so people try harder to be better, motivated by either fear or pride. As Christians, we often do this too. We end up living by this, and, and, and we can end up doing all sorts of wonderful things. Um, we'll give to the poor. We'll be more loving to our family. We're going to get ourselves to church every Sunday. Uh, but on a deeper level, all we're doing is we're doing this so that God will bless us. We're doing this so we can think of ourselves as good people. We can go, you know what, look at how much I give to the poor. I must be nice. I'll avoid God's punishment for being nice. I hope other people see how good I am. And what we're doing is we're, we're not loving God for himself. We're rather using God to get what we want, to get approval, to get acceptance, to get a, a boosting of our self-esteem. And it shows when we start thinking along the lines of saying, Hey God, I told the truth. Now you owe me. And the problem with this kind of thinking, of course, is that it doesn't get to the root of what the real problem is. See, the real problem is not that you just told a lie. The real problem, the real root is your self-centered, self-oriented nature at the center of who you are. You told a lie in order to protect something about yourself or to, in order to, to portray something about yourself. And so what we often do is we, we cut off the fruit and think that we've done with lying forever. But the root remains. And in six months time, what happens? Well, the roots produce yet another fruit. And we once again produce what we tell another line. We go, but I thought I, I thought I dealt with that. I thought I was better than this. Where did that come from? And it's come from what's really going on inside, which we've never really dealt with. We've made some kind of confession to an external thing and tried hard to be better. But our motivations have all been driven by our own selfishness and self-centeredness. And so what Tim Keller goes on to say is that very often our religious repentance is actually selfish, self-righteous, and bitter all the way to the bottom. He says it's selfish because it tends to focus on, I've been caught out, and God's going to get me, I must avoid punishment. 
It's self-centered because its purpose is to make sure that God keeps blessing me and that I and others can think of me as being a good person, a nice person. I'll feel good about myself. And it's bitter all the way to the bottom because it really is just a means of self-salvation. I can save myself by moralism. And the problem is we can never be good enough. And we know that. And that's why it remains bitter, because we're always realizing that we can never get it right. No matter how hard we keep trying to be better. And how often are we a bit like this, that we're only sorry because we got caught? We're only sorry because of the consequences of our actions and not of the action itself. We're only sorry because of the consequences and not because of the fact that we have offended God himself. Here's a different example. You, you could perhaps get caught up in, in a road rage incident, right? Someone cuts you off, you take out your baseball bat and you smash their windshield. And then you realize what you've done and now you're in trouble and, you, I don't know, you pay the guy off, try and bribe him. And you, you, you wonder to yourself, where did that come from? Because I'm a good person. I go to church. But there's clearly some deeper root going on inside of you. And so you, you try and fix this. You, you go to anger management classes. And you go to that on the one hand thinking that when you do appear before the magistrate, he will say, oh, wow, I'm impressed. You've gone to anger management classes. I'll reduce your fine by half. And so part of your motivation in going for anger management classes is so that you will avoid punishment. And then you get through your anger management classes and you come out the other side and you go, I've become a better person. I've managed my anger. And now you begin to look down on all those other people around you who are still so angry and you just think, shame, these poor people, if only they could be like me. And all you've done is reinforced the self-centeredness that's at the center of your being. You've dealt to some extent with your anger issues, but haven't dealt with the deeper root cause. You're managing your anger, but your anger was just the fruit and not the root. And we think that if we can control the fruit, we'll be fine. But the gospel says, don't just manage your anger. The gospel says, get rid of all anger. And so the gospel then prompts us to look deeper into ourselves, to the root cause of our temper tantrums, and to realize that it's our fundamentally our selfishness and our pride and our insecurities that are at the core. And it is those things that need to be repented of. C.S. Lewis talks about this a little bit when he, he talks about excusing sin. And he talks about how often we end up doing stuff and we begin to look for reasons why we did it in the first place. And what we end up doing is kind of saying, well, look, it wasn't entirely my fault. I got mad. I lost my temper because you know what? The neighbor's dog barked all night and kept me awake. And then when I got up, I burnt the toast and my wife got angry with me. And then the kids were all miserable because their breakfast was ruined. And I went to the office and the boss moaned at me because I hadn't finished the task that he'd set for me yesterday. And so I went out and, and all of this just made me angry. And so we begin to look for excuses. And so what C.S. Lewis says is that we end up going to, to God and instead of asking him for forgiveness, we ask him to excuse us. Excuse us our trespasses, we say. And then we begin to ask God to accept our excuses. 
But then he says this, he writes this, he says, but real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin without excuse and seeing it in all of its horrible dirt, all of its meanness and malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. That's forgiveness. And it's what God does for us. So that's, that's in a sense where worldly sorrow leads us to. Where there's no real repentance. There's a bit of sorrow. There's some remorse. And we're seeking to use pride and fear of punishment to motivate us to be better people. And it doesn't deal with the fundamental issues right at the heart. What about godly sorrow? How then do we deal with godly sorrow? What does true repentance look like? I've been reading from C.S. Lewis for our daily devotions over the last couple of weeks. And uh, if you've been listening to them, then you've heard this before. And I'm sorry, but it's worth reading and saying again. Because C.S. Lewis talks over a couple of uh, meditations on what repentance looks like, what godly repentance truly is. So here's where he starts. He says, when a person gets himself into the hole, the trouble of getting him out usually falls to a kind friend. And later on, he will tell us that Jesus is the kind friend that will get us out of our hole. But before we get there, he says this. Now, what sort of a hole has man got himself into? Well, he tried to set up on his own to behave as if he belonged to himself. In other words, and listen to this. This is important. He says, fallen man is... is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. That's a very important thing to grasp. I think for a lot of people in the world around us, a lot of people in the church seem to think that we're slightly less than imperfect and what we need is a little bit of, little bit of improvement. It's like giving a house a new coat of paint. That's kind of what we need. And we come to church to get a little bit of self-improvement to become slightly better people. And C.S. Lewis says that's not the issue. If you think that you just need a little bit of improvement, you've missed the point. He says we need surrender. We are rebels who need to lay down our arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you're sorry, realizing that you've been on the wrong track and are getting off to the wrong start of life all over again. Um, <clears throat> that, that we're getting on again right at the ground floor. He says that's the only way out of the hole. He says this process of surrender, and again I love the phrases that he uses, is this movement full astern, <laughs> reverse, is what Christians call Repentance. And then he says this, repentance is no fun at all. It's much harder than just merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and all the self-will that we've been training ourselves in for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself. Do you get that? That whole idea of uh, it, repentance means unlearning all the self-will and all the self-conceit that we've been training ourselves in as a human race for thousands of years. Can you see how Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis are saying the same thing? That the deep problem with the self, is with the self-will and the self-centeredness of the human race. That's the deep problem. That's what ultimately needs repentance from. 
So what does godly sorrow, what does godly repentance look like? If we don't become honest through our appeals to to pride and punishment, then what will motivate us to deeper and lasting change? Titus delivered the letter to Corinth, came back to Paul a little while later. Titus left again and went to the island of Crete. And there Titus became a pastor and Paul sent Titus a letter. The letter that Paul sent to Titus was not a harsh and nasty letter because Titus was doing a good job. Paul sent a letter to encourage Titus. And in Titus chapter 2 verse 12, Paul says this. He says, the gospel of God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. So just think about what we've been saying so far. What could be some of the things that would motivate us to say no to ungodliness, no to the temptation to walk into sinfulness? Well, we could say, no, uh, if I do that, I look bad. Other people will look down on me. Uh, If I do that, I'll be excluded perhaps from some of the social circles that I want to be part of. No, I won't do that. If I do, God will not give me the rewards that I expect from him. Or, or, or no, I, I won't do that because God will, God will punish me. He'll send me to hell. Or, or we might say, no, I, I, I'm not going to do that because I'll hate myself in the morning. I'll feel bad about myself. But all of those motivations are, again, self-centered. We're, we're, we're again, using these self-centered motivations to force our hearts to obey external rules. That we hopefully will bring about some kind of change, but that in itself is just all, in essence, self-centered. And so Paul says to Titus, listen, it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And what he's saying is this, that we need to let the gospel sink down deep into the very center of who we are to transform us from the inside out. We need to truly and firmly believe in the gospel. And when we do that, we find that that it confronts all the human needs that eat away at our souls. The need to be constantly respected, which is why we lie, because we need people to respect us. They can't think bad things about us. It's why we lose our temper, because you, you need to respect me. How dare you? How dare you disrespect me? Or the need to to control our lives and the world around us. Which again is why we get angry because someone's removed that area of control from us. It's why we lie because we'd better not lose control of what's going on. Or the need for power over others in order to boost our self-control. Which again is why we lose our temper or why we would tell a lie. But the truth of the gospel sinks down and confronts all of those needs. The gospel tells us that we don't need to earn acceptance because God has loved and accepted us in Christ. The gospel tells us that we don't need to be in control because God is in control of all things. And so our identity doesn't come in what we achieve and what we earn and what we fought for. Our identity comes in what God has done. And so we don't need to lie because our reputation isn't the most important thing to us anymore. And we don't need to respond in anger because no one can take away from us 
what God has already given. And so we find that this principle then comes to work. That the gospel destroys and undermines our pride. Because the gospel tells us that we were lost, that we were sinful, and Jesus died for us. And there's no room for pride in that. See, if you misunderstand the gospel and think that I'm not a terribly bad person and I tried really hard and I found God and God just said, well, come on in, you might as well, you're a nice enough person. Well, then there's an element of pride in that. I'm good enough for God. I've earned this. I deserve this. But the gospel smashes that, takes that away and says, no, you weren't. You weren't good. You weren't looking for God. You, you were a mess. You were broken. You were in a hole you couldn't get out. God came to you. And so the gospel destroys all pride and destroys pride as a motivation for change. The gospel also destroys the fear of punishment because the gospel assures us of this. Nothing that we can do will exhaust his love for us. And when we embrace this, when we get this, we find that we're, we're not just restrained in our behavior and learning to manage our morality, but that we are fundamentally changed at the very core of who we are. And so we no longer just tell the truth because it benefits us and makes us feel good about ourselves. Instead, we tell the truth and keep our promises out of love for the one who died for us, who kept his promises to us despite the suffering that brought to him. And so the gospel leads us to do the right thing for his sake, out of a desire to know him and please him. We're going to finish up in a moment. Let me talk about gospel repentance and just give a couple of practical thoughts on how to do this. And then we'll be done. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, nailed 95 theses to a door in, in Wittenberg. And um, those theses were, were 95 points of argument and debate that he wanted to debate with church authorities. And the very first argument that he wanted to make was this, that the Christian life is a life of continual repentance. I think sometimes, in, Christ in some Christian circles anyway, there's this idea that I repented once many years ago, and now I'm a Christian and now I'm done. But Martin Luther says, and rightly says, that our life is a life of constant repentance, continually going back, continually turning our back on our sin and turning back to the cross. And it's continual repentance because our hearts are weak. And so there is this continual repentance, this continual ongoing returning to the gospel. So how do we do that? And again, I'm going to ask C.S. Lewis to help us. He gives us two, um, two, two areas of, of helpfulness for us this morning. Um, speaking of uh, contrition and confession that will lead us to repentance. And then we'll finish off with something that Tim Keller has to say. So he says, uh, C.S. Lewis speaks about this theological word called, uh, this theological word contrition. Contrite, as you know, <laughs> as you know, is translated from the Latin word. I'm sure you knew that. And it means to be crushed or pulverized. Now, modern people complain that there is just too much of that in the Anglican prayer book and too much in the church in general of being crushed. They don't wish their hearts to be pulverized. They don't feel that they can say with any kind of sincerity that they are miserable offenders. We're not. We're not. We're, we're generally quite good people. 
He says, I once knew a regular churchgoer who never repeated the words, the burden of my sin is intolerable, because he didn't feel that they were intolerable. You know, there's a, there's a brilliant example of exactly this line of thinking. Just a couple of months ago, um, someone interviewed Donald Trump a little while ago. Um, it, 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 he was talking about how he loves the Bible and how the Bible is just a great, great book. And so they said, well, the Old Testament or the New Testament? Oh, both. But both are just fantastic. It's just both of them are great and mean so much in his life. And so then the guy said, well, well, can you tell us a particular verse perhaps that you really particularly like? Oh, no, all of them. They're all just great. It's just great, great, great. Uh, and then the interviewer said something to, to uh, Donald Trump about the, the biblical issue of forgiveness and for finding forgiveness in Scripture. And Donald Trump said this, and this is quite insightful, not just of John, Donald Trump, and please, I'm not, I'm not you know, poking a stick in his face, because I think what he says is kind of standard operating procedures for the vast majority of, of people around the world who have some kind of Christianese background to them, where he said, I don't need to go to God for forgiveness all the time because I live, I, I do my best to live a good life. I live well enough that I don't need to keep asking for forgiveness. And that, C.S. Lewis says, is precisely our problem. We're just not aware of our sinfulness. The regular churchgoer who would never repeat the words, the burden of my sin is intolerable because he didn't feel that they were intolerable. The prayer book isn't talking about our feelings. It's talking about uh, the fact that we need to use the word miserable in the old sense, meaning that we are objects of pity. And so the first step in repentance is really that sense of contrition, that my heart is broken and that I need, I seek, I, I am a pitiable creature before God. Then, after we've got through the issue of contrition, he speaks of confession. And he says, it's not for me to decide whether you should confess your sins to a priest or not. But if you do not, then you should at least make a list of your sins on a piece of paper and make a serious act of penance about each of them. There is something about the mere words Provided, of course, you, you avoid two dangers, either sensational exaggeration, in other words, trying to, uh, to work things up and make melodramatic sins out of rather small matters. Don't do that. But the op opposite danger is of just slurring them over. And so he says this, and I think this is, this is helpful, this is important. He says it's, it's essential to use the plain, simple, old-fashioned words that you would use about anyone else. I mean words like theft or fornication or hatred instead of, oh, I didn't mean to be dishonest or I was only a boy then or I just lost my temper. I think that this steady facing of what one does know and bringing it before God without excuses and seriously asking for forgiveness and grace is the only way. For C.S. Lewis, contrition and confession lead to repentance. Let me finish this morning uh, with something very practical, and I'm going to put this up on our Facebook page later today, and you can come back to it. Uh, Tim Keller quotes from George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a preacher. He actually taught John and Charles Wesley how to preach 
open air to the crowds. And between the three of them, they preached to goodness knows how many millions of people in the 1700s. And between the three of them, uh, through the power of God, brought about mass revival in England and in uh, the colonies in America. Um, and the, Whitfield, uh, sorry, the Wesleys went on, of course, to start the, the Methodist Church. Uh, George Whitfield, um, well, here's what he said. Here's what Tim Keller says about George Whitfield. He says, Whitfield ordinarily conducted his personal inventory at night. And he laid out a, a, an order for regular repentance. So George Whitfield, at night, regularly, most evenings, would reflect on his day and do the hard work of personal, private repentance. And I'm going to encourage you to do the same. And you might feel that doing it every night is too much, but can I challenge you to try and do this once this week at least? George Woodfield wrote these words. He says, God give me a deep humility, a well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye. And then let men or devils do their worst. <laughs> and so following this then is one way to, u- to use this order in gospel-grounded repentance. And so there are four parts to it, right? He, he asked about a deep humility, well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye. So here they are. Deep humility versus pride. Here are the questions to ask. Have I looked down on anyone? And it's easy to take a question like that and go, ah, no, not really, I'm fine, and carry on. But have I looked down on anyone? Do I look down my nose at others? And I've got to say that in in South Africa, and to be honest, in our world over the last month, it's been very easy to look down our noses at others. To perhaps look down our noses at others of different cultures, different races, different ethnicities. To have a sense and a feeling of superiority, I'm not like them. Have you ever used that phrase, them and they? As soon as you, you start talking and, and isolating people groups into them and they, you're automatically looking down your nose from a position of superiority. Do you speak about our government in, those, in that way? Do you speak about people in your family like that? Have I looked down on anyone? Have I been too stung by criticism? When someone criticizes you, what's your response? <laughs> I know what my response is, and it's not good. Are we, are we too stung by criticism? Have we felt snubbed or ignored? Then repent like this. Consider the free grace of Jesus until I sense, number one, A decreasing disdain of others, since I am a sinner too. Secondly, a decreasing pain over criticism, since I should not value human approval over God's love. And in light of this grace, I can let go of the need to keep up my good image. It's too great a burden and is now unnecessary. I reflect on the free grace, until I experience grateful, restful joy. Deep humility versus pride. Wise courage, or zeal, versus anxiety. Have I, ado- uh, sorry, have I avoided people 
or tasks that I know that I should face? Have I been anxious and worried? Have I failed to be circumspect? Have I been rash and impulsive instead? Repent like this. Consider the free grace of Jesus until there is a no cowardly avoidance of hard things since Jesus faced evil for me and b no anxious or rash behavior since Jesus' death proves that God cares for me and will watch over me. It takes pride to be anxious and I realize that I'm not wise enough to know how my life should go. I reflect on free grace until I experience calm thoughtfulness and strategic boldness. Burning love versus indifference. Have I thought, sorry, have I spoken or thought unkindly of anyone? What the words that you've used about people around you, about people around the world in the last month? Am I justifying myself by caricaturing someone else in my mind? Have I been impatient and irritable? Have I been self-absorbed, indifferent, and inattentive to others? Repent like this. And I think you can just about repeat the words with me here. Consider the free grace of Jesus until there is a no coldness or unkindness as I think of the sacrificial love of Christ for me. B, that there is no impatience as I think of how his patience with me and see that there is no indifference as I think of how God has been infinitely attentive to me. And I reflect on free grace until I show warmth and affection. And then finally, godly motivations, a single eye, a clear vision ahead. Am I doing what I do for God's glory and for the good of others? Or am I being driven? And listen to this, what we said earlier. Am I driven by my fears? my need for approval, my love for comfort and ease, my need for control, my hunger for acclaim and power, or my fear of other people? Am I looking at anyone with envy? Am I giving in to even the first motions of lust and gluttony? Am I spending my time on urgent things rather than important things because of these inordinate desires? Repent like this. And you can say the words with me now, right? Consider the free grace of Jesus. And consider how that grace provides me with what I'm looking for and all these other things. And then pray. Oh Lord Jesus, make me happy enough in you to avoid sin. And wise enough in you to avoid danger that I may always do what is right in your sight. In your name I pray. Amen. George Whitfield went through that process regularly at night before bed. I'm going to post it on Facebook in a short while. Would you commit to reflecting at least once this week on those questions and doing the hard work of digging deep into your soul and pursuing godly repentance 
that leads to salvation, to life, to joy, to longing, to affection, to justice, justice to, to eagerness, to hope in the gospel for his glory and his name's sake. Let's pray together. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning recognizing our need, our shortcomings, our failures, our lacks. Recognizing, oh Lord, that very often we're just trying to modify behavior because we just think we need to be a little bit better than we currently are without often realizing the deeper nature of where the true problem lies. And so, Lord, this morning we pray, reveal to us, confront us, with our, our pride and our fears, confront us with our selfishness and self-centeredness and self-righteousness. May we come to you in contrition and confession and find that in you, true change takes place by the goodness and glory of the gospel. And so, Lord, drive your gospel deep into us as we recognize once again that we are sinners desperately in need of grace. And that we are loved beyond anything we could, be, we could imagine by the one who gave his all for us. In whose name we pray. Amen. Enjoy your Sunday in the sunshine. We'll see you soon. God bless. Thank you, Greg. Well done. Job done. Sure.